Hello, good evening everyone and uh, welcome to this, the third in the, uh, the six-part series called Moving, Teaching, Inspiring. My name's Oliver Cox, I'm the Heritage Engagement Fellow here at Oxford and it's a real pleasure to welcome you to this lecture called Our Collections and Their Audiences. So this lecture series organised by my colleague Alice, Alice Perkis but I got Peter's name wrong last time. I now have called you Alex. It's the, it's, the, it's, it's the august company I'm surrounded in. I forget my own colleagues' names. Um, celebrates the range of exciting collaborations that have developed between the National Trust and Oxford over the past three years. So we hope to explore and interrogate the many challenges and opportunities facing the higher education and heritage sectors in a post-Brexit world and highlight the many points of connection between our two institutions, from caring for collections and landscapes to gaining support through brand and marketing and to that big old question of relevance. So our two speakers tonight, Simon Murray and Zar Sturgis, are two of the best people any audience of heritage and higher education professionals could wish to hear from of an evening. Simon is Senior Director for Strategy, Curatorship and External Affairs and has worked for the National Trust for 27 years. Over a long career, he's championed a broad appreciation of heritage, both within and outside the organisation. He led on the acquisition of Mr Straw's House, Monkthorpe Baptist Chapel and the Workhouse in Southall, as well as John Lennon's boyhood home in Liverpool. More recently, with, strategy and, uh, with responsibility for strategy and curatorship, he's been the principal architect behind the National Trust's new strategy, Playing Our Part, which has set an ambition to transform the interpretation of its country houses and look at how the National Trust can support local heritage and green space at a time when these are under increasing pressure from government, local government cutbacks and developments. And Dr. Zar Sturgis is the director of the Ashmolean Museum. And Zar became director of the Ashmolean in October 2014. From 2005, he was director of the Hoban Museum in Bath, where he oversaw the museum's award-winning renovation and transformation. He had previously worked at the National Gallery in London in various posts, including exhibitions and programmes curator. So how this evening is going to work is that Simon and Tsar will each speak for 20 minutes before uh, Alice will chair an in-conversation session. We'll then open up the floor for rigorous, challenging, scary, in-your-face questioning. That's what we want tonight. Um, and, uh, and once the sort of punch-up is, is, is sort of finished... Um, we'd be delighted if you could all join us for a post-punch-up drinks, um, which we're going to be hosting in the Colin Matthew room um, just across the courtyard. And there'll be colleagues who will chaperone you to, uh, to your wine, which you will have all worked hard for, not least as hard as Simon and Zar. So I'd like to open the floor to Simon. Thank you very much. Thank you, Oliver. Uh, do we look like two people are going to have a punch-up? <laughs> Aggressive sort of street kids that we are. Okay. Um, here we go. So anyway, 
Hello, good evening, and uh, it's great to see you all here. I'm going to rattle through a few slides that will tell you a little bit about what we're doing in National Trust around this, this whole idea of giving people um, moving, teaching, and inspiring experiences. Now, if you came to Helen Ghosh's talk, and I don't know if any of you did, it was about the, the National Trust strategy, and in a nutshell it goes, that we have a responsibility to continue to look after the places that we own and for the benefit of the nation, open them up to the public. But the big change this time is around saying that actually it would be a tragedy if the National Trust owned these wonderful oases and everything around it went to pot. And actually, I think it probably is a bit. So if you take nature, which is one of our big themes, nature is, a, is under threat as never before. But we only own 1% of the, of the land of this country, so we need to do it in partnership other, with others, hence playing our part. And we know that people love the places where they live. Is there anything the National Trust can do to, look, to help people look after the beauty of their local places? And one of the most important themes then in the strategy is how can we use the experiences that people have when they come to our houses, our historic properties, as ways of inspiring them to act with us to help us preserve places of historic interest and natural beauty? And so the vision that we have for this part of our strategy runs like this. So we will give our visitors experiences that are emotionally rewarding, intellectually stimulating, and will inspire them to support our cause, both through supporting the National Trust directly, it helps if people become members, and taking something of what we stand for into their own lives and acting on it. So it's a very ambitious strategy. And what it's saying is basically, it's not enough just to come to a place, have a nice time, get some intellectual stimulation, it's actually what we do with that that's so important. And we know, that you know, this is, this is a quote from uh, a research, research council report in 2009, that the degree, as it says here, which we have an intense interest or emotional experience, influences the decisions, attention and long-term memory about an experience. So that's a pretty tall order for the experiences that we give people when they come and visit our places. But actually, we know that actually there are many challenges in, in the way of that. Where I'm not here today to say, this is what the National Trust did, we've got it all sorted, because frankly, we haven't. This first one shows some research that we did when we were drawing up the new strategy, and it, what this basically shows, if you look on the left-hand side, that says the, the strength of association with the National Trust, whilst along the bottom, it's, it's all about how important this is for your, for your, in your life. And what it says is, the stuff in the bottom right is all about nature and children's place in nature and getting outside. Really important to people, but actually they don't associate the National Trust with it at all. It's down the bottom. And the stuff that they do associate with us, which is looking after historic buildings, they say is not important to them. So we have a real problem, National Trust, double whammy of irrelevance. <laughs> so that's a really good starting point. The, the way after that can only be up. Um, this is also interesting, but also depressing. So this says that over the last few years, as visitors have come to National Trust places, they've had a good time. The service has gone up, they're having a nice time, but actually visitor enjoyment over on the left is actually going down. And more worrying on the right-hand side is that emotional impact, you know, that deep connection is not only very low, but it's also going in the wrong direction. So are we more than just a, a, a nice day out? This is a bit messy, but just look at the colours. So what this says is, this is some research we did with uh, Matthews, Hargreaves, McIntyre. And the blue means social, the reason for going this is. The, um, the yellow is intellectual, the pink is uh, emotional, and the top is spiritual. And what this says is that when we did, eight, this is a result of 18,000 people surveyed. 
And we surveyed them before they went and then after they came back from that visit. And what this says is a large part of the motivation for people going on visits remains social. They're going out with the kids. They want to go out for a cup of tea. That's great. Less so on the, on the others. But actually, what happens when they go to National Trust places and they come back is actually they've been frustrated with the lack of intellectual input and the lack of emotional response, and they have largely a social experience by going to our places. That is not the same as it is for the large museums and galleries, and I'm sure this is the case with the Ashmolean, where the, where the takeout in terms of intellectual and emotional takeout from that visit is much higher than it is for the National Trust. All right, getting depressed yet? This also shows here, this is what's happened to our members over the past, uh, since 2000. And these lines, basically, the one line that's going up, which is the purple one in the middle, is for our senior membership. So this says everything else is flattening off, but actually our core audience is getting older. So this is worrying. So what's happening, what's going to happen in the future? So we're not getting through to people and it's getting an older and older audience. So the whole purpose of this new program is to design experiences for the next generation. And we need a lot of work to do. So this you might recognise if anybody had been to a National Trust house or anything like it. This is a typical National Trust uh, dining room. And we have 250 looking like this. And they all have a mahogany dining room table in the middle. And they're all set with Sèvres or Worcester porcelain and a bit of glass around the edge. And then around the room there are paintings of uninteresting and boring ancestors painted by third-rate artists. And we're expecting people to go, wow, look at that. God, that's an emotional experience I've just had, I don't think. But it's actually quite difficult showing these country houses because it's not like a museum. It, I'm afraid Tsar has it dead easy. A lot of white spaces, you can arrange things in whatever order you want to tell a chronological story, a thematic story. In a house, you can't. The hall is the hall, the dining room is the dining room. It doesn't go in sequence. But over the years, we have tried, we and others in the, in the business, have tried to make these places more interesting, more relevant for audiences. So in Earthing in the 1970s was the first place, I think, to really start taking it from the perspective, what about the servants? How did the servants live? It was really appropriate at Earthing because actually the York family treasured their servants. But that has kind of come, oh God, not another servant's quarters just to be relevant to the ordinary person. It was also the time when we got into the doing authentic interiors. This is Hardwick Long Gallery, stripped out by Peter Thornton from the V&A in the 1970s. All the Victorian and uh, 18th century furniture is now up in the attics. You never get to see it because this is a genuine Elizabethan interior, except it's not because all the pictures hung on the tapestries would never have been there in Bessie's day. And then we get into the more exciting stuff, 80s into the 90s, when Hampton Court and Dennis Sever's house starts to create the idea of historic interiors as an experience, where you get the flames and you get the costumed guides and you get the smells and all that sort of thing going on. Again, good at getting the audience involved. Cork Abbey, preserving it as found, every layer left in place. Every, the nut and bolt becomes as important as the painting. Avebury Manor, TV as heritage. Did anybody ever see this? It's great for the point, the decoration is terrible, which they did, the BBC did, but actually people talk and they chat and they sit on, they sit on the chairs, they have a great time. And then Kensington Palace, the Enchanted Palace, extraordinary exhibition put on by Wild Works. I say mundane because it started that awful habit of writing on things. Has everybody noticed that? If you go around to too many places these days, even exhibitions, there's writing on everything, writing on chairs, writing on tablecloths, writing on pillows. 
empty country house use it as an art gallery. This is interesting. So this is using the visitor as curator. This is Allen Bank, which was Wordsworth's house at the top end of Grasmere, partially destroyed through a fire a while ago. We use it just to say to people, express your own views on the landscape. And they use it. They write on the walls. They write on charts. They paint pictures. Fascinating. All of these things are ways of trying to make accessible to different audiences the experience of going around a historic interior. But then there's an interesting moment, a sort of light bulb for me, on this place, which is Quarrybank Mill near Manchester, on which there was a, a TV programme, a drama set called The Mill, about five years ago on Channel 4. And an extraordinary thing happened when this happened, because we survey visitors all the time. And this emotional response that I talked about, which is generally pretty, you know, not high, when people came, having seen the TV programme The Mill, the emotional response to the visit doubled. We hadn't changed a thing, but it literally doubled. And the reason it doubled is because it's what was in their heads. They populated this place with the, what they had seen on television. So this has led us to a view that it's not about giving people things to look at. It's giving people eyes to see. You need to give people the context. You need to fill their heads with something that enables them to relate to what it is they are about to experience. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But this guy, great bloke called Tre uh, Freeman Tilden, he was onto this. He was a 1950s American guru on interpretation. And he said, thousands of naturalists, historians, archaeologists, and other specialists are engaged in the work of revealing something of the beauty and wonder, the inspiration and spiritual meaning that lie behind what the visitor can with his senses perceive. So that's interesting. It's not what you see. It's the meaning you take from it that gives it impact. Museum of Innocence, Istanbul. Uh, novel by Orhan Pamuk, uh, who is a Nobel laureate. Anybody know this? So he wrote, he wrote the book and he, and he created a museum at the same time as he was writing the book, in parallel. It is a museum dedicated to fictional characters. So the person in it, I um, can't remember his name now, but anyway, the lover, the main, it tells the story of a frustrated uh, love relationship between a man and a woman. And the guy who's pursuing this woman creates this museum in the book as the book is being written, as the story is being told, and the museum actually exists in Istanbul today to a load of uh, fictional characters. So it's a kind of ironic take on the role of museums. But what's fascinating in reality, for me, is this one, which is, this is 4,000 cigarette butts, which he has created an, an exhibit on. And what this is, is, is taking to the absurd extreme the notion of why we value things. These cigarette butts, which in any other context is rubbish, becomes hugely meaningful for the character, Kamal, because they were smoked by his lover, and he's pinched one every day from her ashtray and kept them for eight years each day, and then he put, stuck them up on, the, up on the wall. The point is that this is... What this is saying is something that is meaningless as a cigarette butt can have huge and profound and an emotional meaning to somebody if the meaning behind that thing is revealed to you. But on its own, it's meaningless. So when we get then to our places, what is the gateway? How can we create the circumstances? This is Durham. Durham has the lowest or had the lowest visitor enjoyment scores in the National Trust. 
Now it's on the way up, because it's got a fantastic story. It's got a way into the place that, that enables you to look at the Brussels tapestries and the Delftware, and not be told, this is a Brussels tapestry, and you're supposed to go, wow, isn't that interesting? It tells the story of a man who, after the religious turmoil of the mid-17th century, laid the foundation stones for the society we enjoy today, through things like the Foreign Office, the War Office, the, the way that we manage the colonies, etc. So it's a really profound story. If you can get into his head, you begin to understand the world that he created. Or here in Northern Ireland, at the, at the house of the uh, seventh Marquess of Londonderry, he was, he was a, a Nazi sympathizer before the war. He thought that the way out of the problems in Europe was appeasement, not, not fight. So Ribbentrop came to stay at Mount Stuart, their house, frequently before the war, and hence the stormtrooper that still sits on the mantelpiece. Previously, we've shown it simply as a decorative thing, talking about the Lawrence paintings on the wall. But now we're beginning to embed the story of the Seventh Marquis as a way of understanding the history of the place. And it doesn't always have to be interpretation. Last summer, we ran something called the Mount Stuart Conversations, where we had people, conversations about conflict resolutions, about appeasement between, you know, authorities, academic authorities in the area. And it's a way of exploring the subject that gives you, as a visitor, um, a, an inroad into that subject. So we've begun to formalise this into a thing that we're calling national programming, and here is Dunham Massey, uh, Sanctuary from the Trenches, an exhibition that was put on three years ago, yes, will be three years ago, uh, which got to the final of the Museum of the Year Award, which recreated a, war, a wartime hospital in the house. And now we go on, and Tom Freshwater, who's running this program, is here tonight, into this idea of national public programming, where we do things beyond our properties as well as on our properties, talking about subjects that may provoke people, that may uh, perhaps even upset people. We've got quite a bit of negative press into this. But the point is that it's about how can you reveal something about these places, taking a different view from it, from the, pre from the previous art historical starting point. And in 2018, we will be looking at women and suffrage. 2019, we'll be looking at radical landscapes. And these here, the Tolpuddle Martyrs Tree. That hill on the top right is Divis outside Belfast, a, a point of bringing together of Catholics and Protestants. And the really significant thing, bottom right, when the uh, Kinder Scout in 1934, the walkers who were fighting for their right to roam on the, on the, in the Peak District were beaten off uh, by, uh, by uh, gamekeepers. All this is great, I think. It's working. It's giving people a window onto an environment which they perhaps don't have the tools to understand. It's very easy if you have a background and you understand. If you're interested in Chinese wallpapers and you don't understand it, you can see they're beautiful. You can understand how, where they come from and all that sort of thing. But if you don't, you possibly need help. But it still, for me, leaves the, the challenge of the treasure house. Somewhere like Kingston Lacey, full of the most fabulous objects. How do we unlock the meaning behind objects like that? Now, the inverse or the contact counter to what I started with, with that boring dining room with the boring portraits might be that we disrupt the whole concept of a dining room. 
This is, this, is one, uh, this is an artwork done by the Dutch art ceramic artist Bauke de Vries, which is basically baking up all the porcelain that was laid out neatly and creating an artwork. It provokes you to look and see things in a different way. And indeed, he's worked with us at Croom Park, which is a largely empty house in Worcestershire, just in that way. His gold box sets this porcelain within a gold reflective box. It's, it seeks to make you look at the place in a different way. All these things, basically, though, I think the answer is that we can't, within the historic environment, disrupt them in that sense. I think we have to accept them as being, they are lived in home spaces, and we have to work around them. We can give people a gateway to understand, but when we're there, I think we have to not disrupt them in that radical way. So therefore, we are also beginning to explore, so what's the role of digital in all of this? Um, and with our programme that we ran last year on Europe and Us, this is something we created online, which was 99 objects. Gabriella here did it. Um, and all these objects, you know, a small piece of text around it, encouraging people to get to follow it. And equally, and this is the big partnership and where it's really flourishing between Oxford and National Trust uh, through this, this initiative, uh, which is you know, promoted by Torch, but which is this uh, uh, knowledge transfer partnership. And what we're, what we're doing here is creating a number of uh, short articles written by Oxford academics that can help online um, reveal some of the stories behind our places. So started as a regional project in the south of England, it's growing momentum enormously. So the idea was basically, we started at this place called Stowe. What are the subjects that might be of interest, you know, so Alice put out the call to academics to, you know, what are these things that might be? What is code stone? What is patriotism? And the idea is you create very short but academically accurate articles of no more than 300 words, put them online, and then they provoke the curiosity of visitors, not only in the subject areas itself, but as you go on, you can see that, of course, there are many other places around the country how many medieval destroyed villages are there? Is it worth going to see them? It incites curiosity in the visitors going forward. From your point of view, from Oxford's point of view, it's a great opportunity to get your work in front of a large audience. The National Trust now has nearly five million members. There are a lot of people who look at our website. So this is a great opportunity here. Um, and Jessica Davidson has her page there with all the articles that she's written. It's a good opportunity. So it works in both ways. It's a really fruitful partnership, not only because we're getting great content online that, that, that you know, sort of expands people's understanding of the places, but actually we're getting some great challenges from the academics in Oxford, which are making us change our views on places. So I think there's a lot more that we can do in this area. And of course, for, for Oxford, there are umpteen million places that you can work on that will meet any academic interest you may have. And lastly, before I close, we're beginning to think, oh, say, so what is, the, what is the role of social media in this space? Can we use social media more effectively to turn these largely passive activities of visiting into a more ac active um, uh, relationship? On uh, Instagram, we have 500,000 photos on the National Trust Instagram site, and uh, probably about 99% of them all look like this. But we're beginning to think, so how could we actually turn this into something meaningful? It's probably quite easy to start to stimulate that response to a visit, post-visit, to include content that begins to cause people to think about why we are doing the things we are doing. It's probably 
little bit more difficult, but still possible to think of using social media, things like Facebook, to promote the visits, you know, drive the visit, place you might go to um, before you go. The most difficult, but perhaps the most revealing, might be if we can use smartphone technology and, and social media during the visit. Now, it's, it's quite common practice in museums these days to do this sort of thing, you know, post-it notes around what did you think of the place, but that is still a one-way relationship. We may say we go away and take them, you know, take it all to heart, but how does the visitor know that? They probably all end up in the bin. So that's common. So could we do that, you know, could we do this live through smartphones, make it a more interactive, and have a debate about stuff as it's actually happening? Go on. By the way, these are very much smarter than mine. This was done by some young guy in, my, in our um, social media team, which is why they keep moving all over the place. You know, we could also ask visitors, you know, could they help with interpretation? So given five particular angles on something, you know, maybe you only want to know about one, the ultimate in layering in terms of, uh, in terms of interpretation. Could you actually help change interpretation? This is a TV program in the States where the, where the viewers actually start to select the object, the cosmetics that they want the girls to test by using Facebook. And lastly, how far could we take that? Could we even help visitors or allow visitors to contribute to the design and the interpretation that happens? Now, I'm not saying all these are necessary. What I'm saying is they are opportunities to explore uh, as we look, at, look to the future. So in conclusion, we set out with an ambition in, in the strategy, through this part of the strategy, to not just create interpretation or experiences that were engaging and intellectually stimulating, but ones which provoked people to action, which, which we wanted to create advocates for the cause that the National Trust um, is espousing. Starting from a relatively low base, as you saw at the beginning, we are making progress going forward. We are beginning to think about how do we create gateways to the experience? How do we give people the eyes to see rather than just objects to look at? And we've decided at the moment that the best way to enter that space is through using humans, using people, using people's stories, and using big themes. So we're working from the outside in, as it were, rather than from the objects up, rather than from the sort of history of the world in 100 objects, which starts with the object and goes up to the big themes. We're trying to get people's heads around the big themes as a way to get them into the right space, enough knowledge, enough understanding to begin to explore the spaces uh, and the objects that, that constitute um, our collections. Because ultimately we want to turn the passive experience that is currently predominant within our houses and in most museums of one person observing into a more uh, active participatory uh, mode because ultimately we want to create advocates who are going to act on our behalf in order to help us together uh, deliver our strategy. Thank you. Thank you, Simon, and uh, good evening. I'm uh, Zar Sturgis from the Ashmolean, which I hope um, needs no introduction, uh, but obviously that's not going to stop me giving you one. Um, so, uh, I mean, as I'm sure you all know, the Ashmolean's collection uh, is one 
that is clearly uh, uh, spans millennia. Uh, we show in this, uh, the gallery on the lower ground floor, we give some sense of its breadth uh, in that at the far end, as you may be able to see, there is a hand axe carved in Wolvercote 300,000 years ago. Uh, and as one moves through the gallery, one arrives in more or less the present day uh, with Barbara Hepworth. Um, a sculpture carved in Cornwall, but one passes through uh, India, Egypt, uh, Greece, uh, Iran, and uh, so on, as one travels through this rather small space. Uh, the collection allows one, therefore, to tell all kinds of stories across time and across culture. Another uh, journey one might take is from the extraordinary Jericho skull, this uh, arguably the earliest portrait in existence, dug up in Jericho, not that one, um, uh, in 7000 BC. Uh, and then one can travel forward to a Lucian Freud uh, painted in the 1970s. Um, and as well as this breadth, of course, the Ashwellian has extraordinary depth. Um, one of the great collections of pre-dynastic Egyptian material, including in this case that it has to be said is hidden in a corner of that room, uh, this extraordinary group of uh, ivory figures uh, discovered in Hierakonpolis, uh, dating from about 3000 BC. Um, and we also, of course, have one of the world's great collections of old master drawings, including more Raphaels than anyone else in the world, as we never tire of telling people. Um, and we have often been described as a collection of collections, so that there is this breadth, both geographical and temporal, uh, but there are also these moments where we plumb into uh, the depths of early Worcester porcelain, uh, the most important collection of early Worcester porcelain and complete anywhere, an extraordinary collection of early stringed instruments. Uh, many of these assembled, in both these cases, assembled by individuals and then given to the museum. And more recently, and perhaps surprisingly, we have this very important collection, uh, arguably the most important outside China of 20th century and contemporary Chinese ink painting, uh, this by Fubuashi, uh, uh, from 1943. Um, so there is this extraordinary range. Uh, we present it in a range of contexts. Uh, we essentially tell the story chronologically. We slice the museum, or one travels through time as one moves up through the museum. Uh, it was, and in the grand uh, uh, redevelopment of the museum opening in 2009, there was this overarching idea that one was crossing cultures and crossing time within the displays of the Ashmolean Museum. Um, and, um, and we certainly do that. But there is a bewildering range of possibilities of how we can present these extraordinary objects uh, to our audiences. Um, we also know, well, we know quite a lot about our audiences as well, and I too have some audience graphs to show you. Uh, we know that there are a lot of them, somewhere between 800,000 and 900,000 a year, um, and rising. Um, and it's always worth remembering that none of them, with the exception of one or two recalcitrant teenagers, are coming against their will. Uh, everyone wants to come to the Ashmolean Museum. Uh, they, um, it's free to enter, uh, but, um, but that's not a reason enough to go to somewhere just because you don't have to pay to go into it. 
People are coming there because they want to. Uh, and we spend a lot of time, quite rightly, uh, worrying about those who don't come to the museum. Uh, we spend quite a lot of time worrying about whether what we give them when they get to the museum is what they want. Uh, but I think we do need to remind ourselves that people come to museums in huge numbers because they enjoy it. Um, as I say, we know who they are. Um, slightly more of them are women than men. Uh, we know how old they are. 24% are over the age of 60 and 19% are under the age of 25. Uh, we know uh, what they do up to a point. We know that they are predominantly uh, both big slices of cake, A, B, C ones, so they are managerial and uh, clerical and uh, generally educated. Uh, we know where they, whether they've been to see us before. Uh, almost half of them haven't ever walked through the doors before they come through the doors uh, on, uh, on any one day. Uh, sorry, uh, I'm not explaining this slide at all. We are here. Um, that is the general uh, museums and galleries uh, column. Uh, these are uh, graphs and statistics created by um, what is called ALVA, the Association of Leading Visitor Attractions, which does allow you to benchmark against others and so shows you, for example, here that we, are, we have a surprisingly or a large and loyal audience. Um, so this big chunk here, which is unusually big, is... Um, people who have visited in the last 12 months. Um, but clearly, that large and loyal audience has to come from far beyond Oxford. I mean, Oxford, 150,000 are visitors, um, almost um, six times that. Um, and we also apparently know why they're coming. Um, and I say apparently because I want to uh, think about this a bit harder. Uh, this is... Uh, these are the ALVA segments of why people are visiting any particular attraction. And they are uh, tick box, which means they feel they should. Um, they are social mindsets, so that is that they, uh, essentially that social idea that they're going to um, come, uh, it's a, a day out, a nice day out. Uh, special focus topic interest, broadening horizons, big kids and child engagement. They more or less explain themselves, but as soon as you start poking at those motivations, they do slightly crumble to dust. So um, why they came, uh, special focus means I came to see an exhibition. But it doesn't ask, answer the question, why did you want to see this exhibition? Uh, or topic interest, I am interested in art. Why are you interested in art? What is it about looking at things in a museum that actually, I mean, what are you doing when you're looking at a thing in a museum? Why is it enjoyable? Is it enjoyable? Are you just anxious? Do you, I mean, these questions are not being asked in these surveys, and actually, of course, they are the fundamental questions of what we are doing in museums or, uh, or why people are in museums. It's not enough to say, I came to the Ashmolean to look at the things in the museum, which is what quite a lot of these things are saying. One has to ask the question, well, what is it about looking at these things in the museum that excites you or that you find enjoyable? 
And it is astonishing how little research and work there has actually been on that very fundamental question. There has, of course, been a lot of, uh, written about uh, on uh, aesthetics and aesthetic theory. And there is a book that I have found useful. I'm sure those who know more will tell me that it's um, uh, completely tendentious, but by uh, two people called Cheeksent, Mihai, and Robinson. It was a book called The Art of Seeing, written in the uh, 1990s, um, which tried to describe or explain what they called the aesthetic encounter. Um, and they, um, it stri strikes me, had two particular insights or, um, or uh, what they laid out was that the structure of this encounter, when you ask people who enjoy looking at things, why did you, uh, you know, what was your experience like? What, what were you feeling? Uh, why was it enjoyable? Uh, the structure of that experience is described almost identically by everyone. Uh, and this is an idea that Essentially, the reward and pleasure of this experience is in, lies in the experience of the activity itself. So it, it, it rewards itself. Um, you're not doing it for any ulterior or uh, instrumental purpose. Um, and when you are looking and when you are, are engaged with uh, a thing or an object, there is, uh, you have a, a sense of concentration, a sense of freedom. You lose yourself a sense of involvement in this activity, which is of itself enjoyable. Um, but then, and this is critical, when you ask what that sense of involvement involved, uh, uh, sort of uh, what the content of that involvement was, um, everyone comes up with completely different things. Uh, so that actually, although that, um, and they relate this experience to the flow experience, but uh, although that the structure of the, that encounter is constant, what people are asking of an object what and how they're answering it in their heads can be deeply emotional, it can be personal, it can be intellectual, it can relate in all kinds of different ways to their experience. But the critical point, of course, is that it's about them and not what they're looking at. Um, and that all, each of us uh, brings to this experience ourselves um, and we in museums simply cannot possibly know what you are like or what you are all like. We can ask various questions but we, uh, and we can uh, make suggestions. Uh, but, all, uh, but there is a real challenge here for museums and indeed for historic houses because every single thing you do to help a viewer um, engage with an object or a work of art might help that viewer, but it might do completely the opposite. Um, and indeed, it's bound to. Uh, it's bound to help someone, and it's bound to put someone off. So to have a full museum with lots of people running around and happy children um, is absolutely what some people need to uh, encourage them into a museum, into, it, uh, into these encounters, but is equally absolutely what some people don't want to uh, see at all. Equally, a historical, uh, any sort of context that one gives to a work of art, and one can awe an object, and one can't help but do that. You cannot not put it in context. Limits, to some extent, it both helps and limits the ways in which people can respond to it. Uh, so one can surround uh, Uccello's Hunt in the Forest with information about um, uh, uh, Renaissance Florence about uh, one-point linear perspective about uh, Uccello himself and his history as a uh, stained glass maker or whatever it might be 
or you can stick it in a white box and put nothing around it. And there are people who will find both of those propositions deeply attractive and people who will find each of those propositions uh, deeply unattractive. Um, and so um, we're bound to fail, or we simply cannot. We, uh, none of us can please all the people all the time. Um, and there are problems with the context that museums characteristically give to their objects. Uh, the one that I feel uh, at the Ashmolean, and although I don't see any way of escape, well, there are ways of escaping it, but Powhatan's mantle, this great iconic object for the museum, is treated almost inevitably at the Ashmolean as a key founding object of the museum, one of the most important uh, uh, objects from the Tradescan collection that Elias Ashmole, our founder, um, who's celebrating his 400th birthday this year, um, established in Oxford and brought to Oxford. Uh, but of course, this is the most significant Native American object in the world. And yet, we look at it entirely through the lens and um, of its role, if you like, within the story of the Ashmolean Museum in a very, in the end, local and parochial, perhaps, context. Um, now, the digital, might not the digital provide the answer, I hear you all ask, uh, because surely if we all have different needs in front of, a different, uh, in front of objects, uh, we all are carrying these extraordinary things in our pockets. Uh, surely we can just point them at whatever we're looking at, and we can, as you suggested, ask for the sort of interpretation we want. Uh, we can ask to have the questions that we are asking answered. Um, and so you might have seen in the papers only last week this thing called... Um, oh, it's got Smartify. Um, and so the idea is that you point it at a work of art and up pops, well, rather disappointingly, up pops a picture label um, uh, of a kind that could be beside the object anyway. Um, but, more, uh, but actually, of course, you don't need an app to do this. It already does this. One can find out anything one wants to know about the bar of the Folie Bergère on this without the Courtauld Institute or any museum helping me. I can go, uh, I can find out all about Manet, I can find out all about, uh, I can read articles, I can do whatever I want. Um, but I tend not to want to do that. And also, that just offering more and more choice of directions to go is absolutely not what in the end, people want. Uh, because as we all know, we are overwhelmed with choice. And what we desperately cry out for is curation um, of some kind. Uh, this is an interesting, this is, sorry, and I probably need to stop soon, uh, but this is Alva again. And this is the emotional impact measures they have for, uh, the, uh, uh, for uh, the experience at various visitor attractions. Uh, touching your emotions, offering opportunities to relax over atmosphere, uh, offering something very different, being lively and exciting, uh, opportunities to think and learn, bringing subject matter to life. The reason I'm showing you this is not so you can see how poorly the Ashmolean does in some of these measures on the left-hand side, but to make the point that on the right-hand side, the one that wins almost... Uh, so this is the highest scoring site Houses of Parliament, 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 Houses of Parliament. At the Houses of Parliament, you have to go on the tour. You're not allowed not to. 
uh, you are, it is the most constrained visitor experience. And actually, of course, in terms of emotional uh, engagement, it is, it appears, uh, on Alva's metrics, uh, one of the most effective. There's a sim I don't know if any of you know the Tenement Museum in the Lower East Side in New York, which similarly, in fact even more so, constrains your experience. Uh, you can only see a little bit of it uh, on a tour uh, following one particular strand, but it is fantastically effective. This is what's you, in stately homes, have it easy, because museums cannot do this. Um, so, f finally, just th uh, some things that we are doing um, to answer, which I hope answers some of these questions, because I think what one can do, what one needs to do for visitors, is um, think about those who are less confident in... Um, in having the confidence to, uh, to recognise that their experience in front of a work of art or an object is as valid as anyone else's, that there is no single way in, that uh, the art historical is not the only context in which one can appreciate and should appreciate objects. Uh, so this is a uh, little project we have done uh, called Thinking With Things, and it's the first of what will be an ever-growing series of podcasts from... Uh, Oxford academics, uh, but from all disciplines. So uh, Marcus de Sotoy, uh, David McDonald, uh, oh, Millen, Donald, oh, crikey, uh, Donald. Uh, so zoologists, mathematicians, uh, we do have an art historian, but uh, astrophysicists and, uh, and so on, each choosing an object and approaching at it, it from their particular perspective. Uh, so to give a sense of the huge variety of possibilities uh, we, uh, that the collections and objects in the collection suggest. Uh, the other two things we are doing in this year, uh, towards the end of this year, um, are uh, redisplaying our founding collections in a way that I hope will be far more dramatic and theatrical um, and evocative of the moment of the Ashmolean's founding, and also bring back together the natural, uh, the sciences and the arts into one space. And that was, of course, the founding, you know, that was the idea behind the original Ashmolean. Um, and the original Ashmolean, as you know, uh, in the uh, building that's now the Museum of the History of Science, also in its basement had a laboratory, a place for experiment. And so we are also going to create a laboratory uh, within, on the lower ground floor of the Ashmolean, where we will experiment. And I hope in a sort of cross-disciplinary uh, way, uh, where we will highlight uh, new research, where we will bring objects uh, and approach them from lots of different angles, where we will, I hope, have fun as well and invite artists, uh, artists in and external curators and others uh, to to play um, with our collections. Thank you. Well, thank you both. Is this working? Is it working? Yeah. And um, thank you both for two really brilliant uh, presentations. And I think um, the, the the session we had last time with geographers, it was very much about how we can help each other. This one was far more about well, what are our shared challenges? And actually, you're both at the coalface of very different types of 
collections management, but with really similar challenges. So for me, I thought that was absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Um, we're going to begin with a few in-conversation questions, and then we're going to open it out to the audience. So please think about uh, a question if you have one, so that when we do open out, you're ready. Um, but the first, the first question I wanted to ask, and I chose this slide um, to kind of illustrate it from the National Trust perspective, perhaps, is this idea of challenging collections because they don't offer themselves naturally to audiences. So this is a, a library at the National Trust, which is very important. It's a big HRC research project going on at the moment. Um, but it's quite inaccessible to audiences, as it is. And I just wondered um, if you could both talk about the collections in your institutions that you really struggle to engage audiences with. Um. Yes, I mean, I think I touched on it in, in what I was saying earlier. It's often those places where the objects in themselves may be wonderful, and there is one response, which is, you know, there is a response of awe in front of, you know, beauty that, that can transcend. Um, but thinking of places like, like that Belton Library, um, or, the, or the, you know, the, the photograph I showed of Kingston Lacey, where there isn't a way into that, I found those are the most difficult. Libraries do present, um, at the moment, a, a problem. I mean, we are increasingly getting more books out, putting them in cases for people to look at. But then you, you, you I mean, you can like them beautifully, you can put well-written labels, but I don't think it's really getting, um, you know, under the skin of the meaning of why, why did the person who collected that, or why did they put those objects, why did they collect those particular books? It's like all collecting, what, you know, the motivation behind it. So I go back to this whole idea of maybe if you can get behind the person who collected, who put together the library, you then begin to, put yourself uh, in the shoes or in the mind of that person. We both said the same thing really, about it's, it's what you go in within your head that enables you to unpack, unpack what you see. And it's how can you help people, you know, how can you give people enough stuff in their heads that they begin to understand things. I mean, libraries there have particular sort of physical problems, unlike paintings, which at least you can see if you can get close. Libraries are, are, are definitely a, a tough nut. Um, yes, I, sp uh, I suppose all the, uh, you know, the entire collection creates challenges because of this question of what people are bringing to the museum and nobody, um, nobody is an expert in, in everything and most people are idiots in most things. Um, and, and so even the hunt in the forest is a challenging object for huge numbers of people. Uh, it, does have, um, it does have, for me, an immediate appeal, but that is by no means universal. I mean, I suppose the, the obvious answer to the question is coins at the Ashmolean, uh, because we have 300,000 of them, and the idea of putting them all on show and displaying them um, is challenging. Uh, but equally, Although everything is challenging, nothing is impossible, and everything has the potential to, uh, to interest. And it's about who, and I think what we need to think about constantly is who are we attempting to interest with this? And uh, all our curators are historians, art historians, uh, archaeologists. Um, and so then the natural instinct is to be talking to peers, to, be, um, to assume all sorts of... Um, knowledge that most people don't carry with them. 
Um, and I think it is always a challenge to you know, suggest that actually this is not common knowledge, uh, this is not common experience one need, uh, in, as one develops those narratives. Um, and, one, and again, the appeal to the emotions, the appeal to what people are familiar with as a starting point is often uh, the most effective way of doing so. I mean, I, I often think that one of the most effective ways in to an exhibition that was ever created was the Pompeii and Herculaneum exhibition at, at the BM, because you went in and there was the absolute minimum of information, just enough to know what the historical event was. And then you went not into a big open space, but down a corridor, and then you were confronted by two of these carboniferized objects from the past. And then you got, so you got this sort of combination of just enough fact, plus an emotional wow, that then, and then prompted your curiosity. Then you, then you were prepared to do some work. I think sometimes it is that, you know, people are prepared to do some work if their curiosity is, is spurred. And I think that, that applies to all difficult collections. And it should be said that objects are, I mean, there is no better way of sort of connecting us to, any, uh, to cultures distant in time or space than things. I mean, because they, you know, we relate to things. They are they're here, they're tangible, they're solid. Uh, and we, we live in a world of things. And so, um, so if one gets it right, if one stops someone in their tracks in front of an object and asks them the right question, with the you know caveat that that won't be the right question for everyone, uh, but that uh, then you can hook them and they become you know doorways to as well as all of us who work with these things know to you know lifetimes of uh, pleasure and inquiry and uh, excitement. Um, and that has to be, if you like, what we try to do in, our, in these roles. Um, and a kind of question that comes off that related, well, that relates to that for me is that question of um, your local community. And I think, you know, Simon talked about the playing, your, uh, playing our part strategy, talking about local mm. um, relevance. And also with the Ashmolean, obviously, Zar, you spoke about needing to attract an audience outside Oxford. But I wonder how we work in both organisations in actually engaging our local audience and what benefit do you feel that that has particularly for your institution? Um, well, I think that, I mean, yes, the Ashmolean is a sort of international uh, institution, but, but equally it is Oxford's museum and the local audience, uh, without the local audience, without that local uh, support and engagement and... Um, sort of commitment to the museum, it, you know, it simply wouldn't exist and, uh, or survive. Um, and so we do, and clearly when one thinks about those groups of people who, are, who don't come to the museum, who one wishes to attract, uh, then clearly the local and regional uh, is where one concentrates. And so we do do a lot of work um, on sort of outreach and uh, projects that you know, which are very resource heavy and very time heavy, uh, but I think are valuable in all kinds of ways and not just for the individuals involved, uh, of in essentially leading people to uh, the pleasures that museums can, can give. Uh, and of course our collections can speak to almost any um, experience, um, and so connections can always be made to things that are familiar. 
I mean, we've been working a lot with the, uh, uh, the Sudanese community in East Oxford uh, through our Sudanese collections, um, and, and, that's exp uh, and as have the other university museums as well. Uh, but, yes, yeah, so museums are a wonderful way in, actually, uh, to um, in, in engaging sort of hard-to-reach groups. But the thing about hard-to-reach groups, as someone said to me quite recently, is that they are hard-to-reach. <laughs> Um, yes, I mean, for National Trust, local audiences is probably the audience. We have a very small percentage of kind of tourists, unless you go to sort of Lake District and Cornwall. Um, but generally speaking, most of our audiences, and we've developed that over, over the recent years. Um, so that, and, and most of people go to outside parts of the properties rather than inside. It's actually become part of the problem, is actually getting that local audience to engage with the houses and to come in. And so we do see this, pro this idea of programming, of constantly changing, playing with the theme, playing with the history, looking at it for, in different ways, different, you know, like having events, like having talks, um, encouraging volunteers, because after all, that's where you're going to get the advocates from. So the, that local audience, given we have this completely ulterior purpose of manipulating people to become our, our, um, our advocates for the future, yeah, there is a sort of a, a, a real importance to local groups. Um. Well, I think it's time to open up to the to the floor. Um, Oliver, would you like to take? He's, he's going to roam for us. Um, can I just ask if you've got a question? Can you, um, before you state your question, could you say your name and where you're from? So, are you an Oxford person or are you a National Trust person? Because we have a real mix. It's actually almost half and half in the room. So, I think it'd be good to get to know who's who. So, we've got one down preempted. Thanks, Oliver. Thanks very much, uh, Simon and Dan and um, Jenny. I'm the Associate Head for Research in Humanities at Oxford. Um, I'm really struck that the <coughs> one I kept expecting you both to say was performance. Yes, it was, what? It was performance because a lot of what you're talking about is actually performative, whether it's using an object as a prop for narrating a story or performing a place through certain kinds of uh, actions or experiences. And so I wondered why that was improper actually in your presentations. But my, my sort of punch-up question is that performance is always political and uh, it's, it's always inclusive and exclusive. And how you might use thinking about the performance of place and performance of space as a way of opening up access, which has been one of the challenges that we've been talking about elsewhere in the series. I'll pass it to you. Um, yes, and of course museums are political institutions um, and you know, and we within museums worry a lot about the, uh, about the problems for access that the institutions themselves create of the, uh, in and of themselves. So um, as you, uh, we worry about stairs a lot, we worry about porticos, we worry about uh, looking like temples and government buildings. Um, uh, and, and obviously within the spaces we are present, you know, inevitably we're presenting a, um, a, a history that has its challenges, shall we say, for, for many people. Uh, I think performances are, you know, uh, display, museum displays are performances. Um, and, and as I hope, I, you know, I 
well, I think if anything emerged from what I uh, was saying, I hope what emerged with complete clarity is there's no such thing as a neutral presentation of anything. Um, and, um, but I do think we could and should work harder at being bolder in some of the statements we make around, uh, you know, around disruption uh, and around um, programming as well. Um, so that, because there remains a nervousness within museums, I think for the most part, about being too bold uh, and, uh, and upsetting, you know, the, what, uh, the most visible core audience. Uh, I mean, it's always a shock to those working in museums, uh, well, working in the Ashmolean, if you say, I'm constantly reminding people, half the people have never come into the museum before because because we have this very loyal group of dedicated visitors, they are very visible and very vocal, and um, and you know are listened to, as they uh, quite rightly. But we must remember that's not our only constituency. Yeah, um, we might not have used the word, but I think certainly there was a lot in what I was attempting to show, which is which is performance. You are, and you are, we are becoming more open about telling a narrative it may it almost inevitably becomes political I mean our LGBTQ work this year is overtly and very and we talked through quite a bit the risks of doing this with that core audience but decided that we would the Europe Europe and us uh, programming that we did a lot of last year with the discussions and, and other um, activities and events was again you know, with a small p, but they were worried about it. But they, those were definitely becoming more deliberately uh, clear in our narrative and how we presented that. So I, I, I do think we have to be more open to taking a line on things, putting a performance out there that has a, that has a position. Uh, I think we have been, and, and perhaps, too much in the National Trust because of our worries about that core audience steered away from difficult subjects. So we have a place up in the, a castle up in the north of Wales called Penryn, um, which was built off the back of uh, a plantation in Jamaica. And the real wealth came from having the biggest slate quarry in the world in the uh, 19th century. And yet when you go there, the performance that you have got until recently has been entirely about Queen Victoria's visit in 1856. So we're beginning to explore through events such as the launch of the, um, the history of quarrying in Wales, performed in, in inverted commas, in Welsh, which was the first time that many of the residents of Bethesda had ever stepped over the threshold so anti the place that they've been. So I think that, I think it does inevitably lead um, to that. You want to another one? Yes. Sorry, I'm wrong. Thank you. Hi, I'm Liz Johnson. Actually, currently the Arsene Council, which shortly to be at the National Trust. Um, I wanted to pick up a little bit further, actually, because I think there is a real tension that there has been for years at the National Trust between the uh, the desire for new audiences, but that sort of um, maybe it's perception of time with the sort of the chocolate box um, desire for core membership. And I, I mean, it's sound business sense, isn't it, to grow a new market set segment mm -hmm. of younger visitors and activists and 
forms of the trust for Donald, but I'm probably prepared to piss off in her segment. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. Uh, but actually, I don't know that you need to. I mean, I think that sort of the the sort of there's maybe a false division between old and young. I like to think there is, you know, from my end of it. No, you sort of implied in your new bit that they were like the next generation. Um, no, I think that uh, I think what we've got to do is use these places as opportunities to provoke thought more than we do. That guy I talked about, Freeman Tilden. He said that the art of interpretation is not about facts, it's about provocation. And I don't know that we are giving our audiences, however old or young, uh, enough credit for the intelligence to want to be provoked. And that slide that I showed towards the beginning showed that actually audiences are getting pretty fed up with that rather bland presentation of the places and the offer that we're giving them. And we know from that same piece of research that 20% of our audiences not only are kind of, oh, you know, move off and say, well, we didn't get quite what we wanted, they actually express dissatisfaction at, at the level of intellectual and emotional engagement they got from a visit from us. So I think there is, I don't think it's a question of, you know, pissing off the purple. I think it's actually, we, we, we stand to lose significantly if we don't treat people as having more intelligence, give them more provocation, something to think about, because I think there's a huge appetite for that learning. Any other questions from Paul? Oh, oh yes, well, Tom. Uh, Tom Richard here from National Trust, um, and in your setup, Oliver, you mentioned the post-Brexit climate. Yeah. So I'm quite interested to hear your views from you both, looking ahead, really. What are those challenges and opportunities that we see? I know we have development and fundraising colleagues here. Is it a scramble for overseas donors? Uh, are there any signals coming out of government that would be interesting to know about? Um, I suspect that I'm particularly interested in sort of research partnerships. I know Oxford, of course, has a really strong track record there, but I think it's something the National Trust can learn from in terms of how we look at things going forwards, particularly as we are beginning to engage in some of those topics that could include India, colonial legacies, legacies of slavery. Um, uh, and, and such, such things. Um, well, government haven't told me anything they haven't told you, which is, uh, so I have no idea what's going to happen. Um, except that clearly it's very bad news for higher education, I mean for universities, uh, in, and particularly around research funding, uh, and that will have an impact um, you know, on the museum as part of the university. Uh, I mean, as far as audiences go, I mean, I'm not, sh I, I think it's very difficult to say what the impact will be. Uh, I mean, I think it makes us within museums more determined to, to sort of wave our multicultural flags, if you like, and, you know, to be a place of uh, acceptance and tolerance and, you know, all the things one would expect museums to be anyway. Um, but, uh, I mean, the only impact so far has been more, um, more inbound and indeed inward tourism, I mean, because of the pound. So it's been, in some ways, um, you know, rather embarrassingly good news. Uh, as, um, and it's made European showcases much more expensive. <laughs> Yeah, I, I guess I'm also not, I'm not as interested in the financial impact of it. I mean, I think from a National Trust perspective, 
that sort of staycation is actually going all our own way if you know because we become good value people stay at home and they do stuff i suppose i'm <clears throat> sorry more interested at that cultural and uh, philosophical level about what um brexit means in terms of small nationalism you know um what we do have in our collections in your collections are obviously international and i think therefore the the opportunity to constantly be talking about those relationships so that minds stay open to new ideas um, is much more important than any financial impact that Brexit may have on us. And I think, going back to that politically, being politically overt, I think we need to stand up more and more for those sort of liberal um, views, those liberal approaches, which, which are all our collections just speak loud of. challenge with exhibitions is marrying one's dreams to the constraints of reality, which... No, but you can't get reality. Uh, and actually, reality is always rather helpful in exhibition making. I, I mean, I actually do find that uh, the fact that you have to work with, you know, with, you can't get the Mona Lisa may, means you, you know, you think about doing something else. Not that you would want um, necessarily the Mona Lisa. <laughs> um, I, uh, I really don't know, actually, Helen. I'm, I realise that this is uh, this is rather feeble because I'm think, uh, you know, I'm thinking of exhibitions all the time, and um, but I do think uh, for the Ashmolean, what I'm keen that the exhibition programme does, and I know this isn't answering your question, uh, is that. It is intelligent. It does. Uh, it does. You know, give the audience a, the benefit of the doubt. And you only have to look at what's happened in television over the last few years to realise that intelligence is hugely popular. Uh, you know, the countless great, great. You know, great television is being made than at any time in my memory, uh, and is incredibly popular. Um, and so I'm keen that uh, the museum reflect the intelligence of the museum, the university, and that it asks big questions, um, and and therefore also reflect the um, reflect the museum as well. So, um, as an example, later this year we're doing this show called Imagining the Divine, which feeds out of a research project that is between Oxford and the British Museum, is about the origins of not one but five world religions uh, and their iconography, all within three rooms. I mean, it's a r ridiculous um, 
in some ways a ridiculous task to take on, but it's absolutely, it strikes me, the sort of thing that the Ashmolians should be doing. Um, and looking at the way in which coincidentally, so at the same time, uh, Buddhism, Christianity, um, Hinduism, uh, Judaism, Islam, all developed the way in which they described themselves visually uh, and the links between the ways in which they did so. I mean, most obviously that Buddha and Christ become represented at the same time. Um, uh, and the, you know, how that connect, what that connection is, is, is a fascinating one. Uh, so um, that's not an answer to your question, but it, I hope it gives goes somewhere. Well, it only gave me about three minutes to think of what I was going to say. <laughs> um, so Helen, I would yeah, I wouldn't go for the the big one-off hit either. Um, so I suppose if if I put at the top of the list and the bit you will know is this whole idea of inspiring people to support a cause. I don't think one-off shows ever do that, however good they are. You know, I know we still talk about, you know, 100 objects and our experience of doing the sanctuary exhibition at, up at Dunham. It was great. It, you know, moved people hugely. But I think it's probably the cumulative effect of doing good things in a number of places repeatedly so that people so their consciousness of what we're trying to achieve, which is the crisis we're trying to avert, um, it remains uppermost in their minds constantly. And every time they have an encounter with us, it consolidates that view that there's something that they need, to, that, that there's a cause they need to join in on, rather than expecting a, just a mega exhibition ever to do that, however many millions you ever put to it. So my bit would be spreading, you know, all that wealth if it were ever available, across as many touch points to come into touch with as many people as possible constantly into the future. Now you've got Well, and just to reiterate, I, I mean, and again, it takes us neatly back to where we, you know, where we both started, that obviously one exhibition will not do it for everyone and will not uh, please everyone. And so that variety, variety of approach, variety of um, attack, I think is, fanta is fantastically important, but consistency of well, I can't end the evening saying mission, can I? But, uh, yeah. but I'm going to. Mission! Um, well, actually, we can end the evening with wine, which is a bit more positive. Right. So um, we'll go. I think that is a good time to stop. We're out of time. But if you have more questions that you've just thought up, um, please do join us for um, drinks just over the quad here um, in the ground floor of the Humanities Building, where I'm sure. You can ask some more questions, I don't know if not. Um, so I just wanted to uh, let you know that the next lecture in the series, we're having a little break over the Easter holiday, but the next lecture is on the 4th of May, um, here at the same time, um, and it's between Pegram Harrison, Pegram is somewhere in the audience, I believe, oh there he is, there's Pegram from the Side Business School talking to Hilary McGrady um, from the National Trust about heritage as business, so please spread the word to um, friends and colleagues, um, and especially, yeah, Pegram, shout out to your business school people, we want some MBAs in the room. Um, so, can you please uh, join me in thanking the two speakers from the series, I thought it was a really...